serve as the foundation for morality. This is a commonly uh, discussed topic among uh, Christians and non-Christians and uh, atheists and theists. Uh, I, I here want to respond to an article that was published a little bit of time ago by Corey Markham, a friend of mine um, who was publishing over at the Atheist Rep uh, Republic. And so Corey uh, published this article. It's a bit old. It's back from 2014, but he talks and hits on a lot of the same issues that we're still talking about and discussing today. And his article was called God and Morality, Why God Cannot Serve as a Foundation for Morality, and was responding to William Lane Craig's moral argument. Now, this ambitiously titled article attempts to show that Craig's argument does not accomplish the goal that it intends to have. I'm going to argue that not only does Markham's argument against Craig fail, but also it doesn't even do anything remotely close to showing that God cannot serve as the foundation for morality. In fact, it seems to me that not only can God serve as the possible foundation for morality, but is the only logically possible entity to do so, thus arguing for the impossibility of the contrary, that God not only is not only the foundation of morality, but that it cannot logically be otherwise. I'll in large part skip the first fourth of the article as it addresses a version of divine command theory ethics that I don't personally ascribe to nor feel any need to defend. In that section, he attempts to undermine Craig's argument by appeal to the long-debunked Euthyphro dilemma. The Euthyphro dilemma seems to have become a staple among new atheists and internet infidel type communities, but it has largely fallen on deaf ears and fallen out of favor even among atheistic philosophers. However, at this point in the article, Markham moves into a version of divine command theory, which I call divine attribute theory, in which moral values are rooted in the nature or the essence of God rather than in God's commands. There may be further discussion about whether or not our moral duties and obligations may, at least in part or sometimes, derive from God's commands. Surely some of them do. But nonetheless, it seems that even to even discuss moral obligations, we must first be able to ground moral values to which one is obliged to keep. There's no need to discuss my civic duties to the state if there is no if there's a major doubt that there's anything like a state law or state authority to which I'm beholden. Markham states <clears throat> that uh, the the divine attribute theory. This uh, he, he says of it quote. This is believed by some to effectively render the first part or horn of the Euthyphro dilemma, what is known as the arbitrariness objection, a moot point, as morality is not arbitrarily set by a god, but necessarily so, by a being who is perfectly and completely good. End quote. Markham concedes at this point that at some level this does avoid the first horn of arbitrariness and that it may even escape the second horn, but only by pushing the goalposts of independence back a row. Thus he thinks that it still ultimately gets hung up on the second horn of independence via uh, a modified Euthyphro dilemma that will deliver the same results as divine attribute theory uh, as the Euthyphro dilemma did against divine command theory. 
He states, quote, To illustrate this, consider how theists tend to describe God as perfectly moral, that God, God's perfectly moral nature is, he is impartial, just, honest, compassionate, loving, etc. The fact that theists use such language to describe their God betrays them as we can now ask whether God's nature is good because it's just, impartial, honest, loving, and so on, or are these qualities good solely because they happen to be among attributes of the creator of the universe? So I'm going to close my email because I keep getting dings. Uh, the problem for Markham's argument began at this very early stage, uh, for he's made a severe conceptual error in confusing the causal arrow. When a Christian says that God is good and then describes him as just, impartial, honest, loving, and so on, they are describing the outworking of God's goodness. That is, God is goodness, and so therefore God acts in ways that are what we come to know as good. God not, is not goodness because he acts lovingly towards us, for example. In fact, God was goodness before the creation of the world and so had not yet expressed love towards us. Those character traits are expressions of the goodness and not the reasons for why God is good. So the problem is largely resolved in the same way that the first horn was avoided. Markham continues, quote, If the former is true, then again, God, could, God would more or less seem superfluous in regards to morality, as it is not God per se that makes something good, but ultimately the properties of honesty, impartiality, compassion, etc., end quote. Here, the conceptual error that Markham had initially made is going to start costing him negative dividends at this point. Because he thinks that the Christian is grounding the goodness of God in their descriptions of God's goodness, he appears to think that this means those descriptions are then placed as standards above God to which God must then align in order to be considered good. So again, these are, these are descriptions of what is entailed by the goodness of God, that is, how it is expressed or displayed. This does not create the independence problem that Markham hopes it would. He digs his hole deeper by trying to compare the problem by analogy to himself. Quote, As long as I myself am compassionate, impartial, loving, and so on, I am good, much this way this God would be if it in fact existed. End quote. Not only does this make the conceptual error I just mentioned, but it also makes a massive category error of thinking that morality relates to all beings omnibus idem, that we are moral in the same way that God is moral, and vice versa. Here, a sneak peek must be given to what is to come, but it is hugely doubtful that Markham is the foundation for all objective moral values, and so when he acts in an ethical manner, he is just reflecting the moral goodness of God, much like how the moon may shine at night, but only as it reflects the light of the sun. So Markham may act in good ways, but he is not goodness. That distinction does, does indeed make all the difference. That is the creator-creature distinction. So with that first horn of the modified Euthyphro dilemma answered, what about the second? Markham writes, quote, But if the latter is true, then there is nothing moral or good about things like compassion, love, and fairness, aside from the fact that they happen to be some of God's personality traits. It's not, after all, as though God chose his nature. Conversely, there is nothing truly wrong with being dishonest, cruel, or unfair, other than the fact that God doesn't act in this manner, 
Under this paradigm, morality amounts to little more than a sort of copycat game of mimicry and imitation. End quote. This again is just highly problematic. Not only does he still confuse the difference between God's nature and the expression of that nature, but here Markham seems to wildly conflate moral values with moral duties. That compassion is a moral good does not automatically entail that beings in God's creation would have some moral duty to uphold them. That is, something can conceivably be good without it being right, and something could possibly be bad without being wrong. Good and bad are words to describe the moral worth of some action. Right and wrong are words to describe whether or not we ought to engage in or abstain from those actions. Duties are an issue of authority. Why I am obligated to do some action P. Well, if I am under no authority, no command, no decree, then I cannot possibly be obligated. So there may be a world in which God is the foundation of all virtue and yet did not bind by either environment or edict any creature therein to those virtues. However, that does not appear to be the world that we are in. Not only is raping a small child for fun and profit evil, we have real obligations to not only abstain from it ourselves, but to actively seek out those who would choose to engage in such actions to stop them from doing it. The fact that these are derived from the nature of God and could not be different is hardly a substantive claim. It's like saying that the solidity of a bar of lead is arbitrary because it did not choose to remain solid at room temperature. Well, in cases where we're talking about objectivity of a concept, the fact that choice is not involved is kind of the point. In fact, the position seems to be a blatant example of heads I win, tails you lose. Markham is here arguing that it is a problem that God did not choose his nature, and yet one wonders why he would argue if the tables were turned and God could choose his nature. Well, in that case, he would likely appeal to the Euthyphro dilemma and argue that therefore morality would just be arbitrary. He then continues on to argue that, to, that by trying to avoid the Euthyphro dilemma horn of arbitrariness, the divine attribute theory creates several new problems for itself. He writes, quote, First, if God is perfectly moral, by which we mean he is incapable of doing wrong, then he is consequently cut off from half of the possible actions and choices that he would otherwise be capable of doing. He is therefore most assuredly not omnipotent, end quote. This is just a massive blunder on Markham's part and reveals that his understanding of classic Christian Orthodox theology is just not that robust. While this argument is popular on online blogs, no theologian, atheist or otherwise, would take this problem very seriously. Omnipotence does not mean God can do any action, but rather means that God could do any logically possible action or that no outside force could prevent God from doing what he wills. In either case, God being unable or, or unwilling to do an evil action is not problematic. For if God is goodness, then for absolute goodness to be absolute goodness, it cannot logically do anything evil. Therefore, because God cannot do anything logically impossible, then as the foundation of absolute goodness, God would not possibly be able to do any evil action and yet still remain omnipotent. 
The other conception of omnipotence would also be unaffected since as the foundation of absolute goodness, God would not desire to do anything evil and no exterior force could cause him to do so. Thus, no power could be exerted against him and thus he would remain omnipotent. Markham then argues, quote, second, this sort of God is certainly not a free creature either by any reasonable definition of the word. When this being approaches an ethical fork in the road, it is inevitably finds one path blocked off. God doesn't choose to do and therefore be good. He just is. This seems to me to make God a sort of wind-up doll, a moral machine with his every action being not only mediated but, uh, but wholly determined by his divine nature, end quote. This again reveals considerable misunderstandings from Markham. Here, I'm not going to be diverted down the massive rabbit trail of discussing or defending any particular view of freedom of the will, but surely any view of the will, libertarian, compatibilistic, full determinism, or otherwise, places boundaries due to the nature to which the will is bound. Even if I have perfect libertarian freedom, I'm not free, for example, to fly like a bird or to be a dolphin. If God is goodness, then just because God's will, God's, God's will and he will always by nature choose the good path, it does not mean that he is not free. It does not make God a robot any more than you or I are robots because we're not birds or dolphins. Another major problem here is that it attempts to place God in time, or at least in relational to causal decisions in the same way that we face them. We are asked to imagine that God is like an explorer walking down the path of life and comes to a fork in the road and must weigh the cost and blindly pick which path to take. This may be one kind of a deity, I suppose, but it surely is not the one of monotheism in which God knows the beginning from the end and does not process thoughts and decisions in the same way that we do. God doesn't need to choose A or B like we do. This kind of confusion and failure to work within the creator-creature distinction reveals a lack of clear and cogent understanding of theism within Markham's arguments. And remember, I'm not saying that Markham needs to believe that the creator exists and therefore the creator-creature distinction is true, but he, when he wants to present the Euthyphro dilemma, which is an internal critique against a Christian view, he needs to work within our frameworks for the internal critique to be valid. Now, in his section entitled, Rape is Bad, Therefore God Exists, Markham then moves on to attempt to engage with Craig's moral argument, which is as follows. This is Craig's argument, quote, Number one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists, end quote. This simple Modus Tollens' argument is a valid syllogism, and so the real question is whether or not the premises themselves are true. Markham begins his assault on the argument with revealing a major flaw in his own argument. He states, quote, Now, leaving aside the fact that many of us think values are necessarily subjective, end quote. Let me, let me say that. Let me say Markham's comment again. He says, quote, now, leaving aside the fact that many of us think values are necessarily subjective, end quote. Remember, the subtitle of the article is why God cannot serve as a foundation for morality. So the irony of Markham's statement should be pointed out here. He's attempting to show that God cannot be the foundation for morality, 
But in order to do so, he must reject that there even is such a thing as objective morality. Now, I've argued extensively elsewhere that subjective morality just is nihilism and thus no morality at all. But observe how Markham needs to deny morality in order to defend his case that God cannot be the foundation of morality. This is a very costly error for him to make. He then continues, quote, To what exactly does Dr. Craig point in support of this? Amazingly, the only thing Craig gives in order to substantiate this, the existence of objective moral values in the world, is the fact that we perceive moral values in the world. That is, because things like rape seem quite obviously wrong to some of us, we can simply conclude from this that therefore these things are objectively wrong, end quote. The first major problem here is that Markham can only say this if he is unfamiliar with the corpus of Craig's work in which he has done quite a bit of defending of premise two. However, even if that were not the case, I would still be inclined to agree with Craig on this issue. We can think of a simple analogy. How am I to convince you that a realm of material objects exist? Well, if I point to the desk and say, here's a material object, what do you say then to the person who rejects the perception and says, well, you cannot appeal to the thing that is meant to be proven? Well, it seems to me that if someone wants to deny that raping a small child for fun and profit is actually objectively evil and immoral, then I'm simply just not sure that they have the moral or rational cap uh, capacities to discuss the issues cogently or objectively. In fact, the only uh, thing I see this ever coming up is in a defense of atheism or a denial of theism, such that it seems that the nihilist is unwilling to accept absurdities in order to escape conceding that God exists. Sorry, I misspoke. Is it, he's in fact, the, the only thing I ever see coming up is defense of atheism or denial of theism, such that it seems that the nihilist is willing to accept absurdities in order to escape conceding that God exists. Markham then goes on to make several quite common but elementary mistakes. He says, quote, the first and most obvious problem with this is that clearly not everyone agrees about what is right or wrong in the first place. Hence, our current culture wars over homosexuality, abortion, capital punishment, etc. End quote. He may think that this is a valid argument, but what he's actually done is confused ontology with epistemology. The existence of disagreement about certain facts does not mean that those facts do not exist or are not objective. If that were the case, then whether or not evolution were true, if God exists, if the earth rotates around the sun or vice versa, and so on, would all just be subjective because uh, be subjective beliefs evolved from our cultural developments. The simple fact that people disagree about something is not a salient point to the argument. This is not a problem for objective morality and in fact is perfectly in line with it. Some people, maybe all people, can be wrong. I'm certain that I have incorrect moral beliefs, yet I'm also certain that those who believe that trafficking humans for profit is morally acceptable are just wrong, and they're as wrong as flat earthers living in the Appalachian backwoods. He continues, quote, Secondly, it appears that some people, psychopaths, are lacking a moral compass altogether. Are we to believe that God dropped the ball here and failed to give them functional moral equipment? End quote. 
This again is not a problem for the existence of objective moral values than is the existence of conspiracy theorists who doubt the moon landing are for the objective historical reality of the moon landing. Just because people who are cognitively deficient do not have the ability to formulate correct beliefs does not entail that the rest of us cannot. We do not say that color is subjective because some people are colorblind. Markham reiterates this fallacy by stating, quote, The next problem is that we cannot simply use the fact that some of us perceive moral values to establish the objective rea- reality of those moral values. This is just lazy reasoning, end quote. Well, hardly. Again, as we've seen, the disagreement over a fact has little to no bearing on whether or not the fact is true or false. Just because nihilists would disagree doesn't mean that Craig or his argument is unsound any more than Markham would, uh, would think that we should doubt evolution because Ken Ham and millions of young earth creationists disagree. Markham then calls an audible and attempts to punt to a concept of beauty and wonders if just because some people observe beauty that therefore there is some kind of objective beauty. He wonders then who would argue such a position and seems to be wholly unaware of the entire field of philosophy which deals with aesthetics, many of whom do hold to objective beauty. In fact, many theists would say, along with their ethicists, that creaturely beauty is only beautiful insofar as it is a display of the beauty of God and that God intended to display with it. While it is beyond the scope of this response to make such a case, I do think that something can be said for such positions. In short, I think it's actually Markham and not Craig who's employing lazy reasoning by throwing up beauty as if it's some sort of prima facie a priori defeater to the objectivist case. Markham then takes a tact that I find somewhat puzzling. He moves to the structure of the moral argument and attempts to argue not only that the premises are false, which we've seen above that he's failed in demonstrating, but also that the argument is a non sequitur, that is, that the structure of the argument is invalid. This is quite bizarre in that the argument is actually a very standard modus tollens structure argument. It's in the form of uh, if not P, then not Q, Q, therefore P. This is a standard syllogistic form, and within the moral argument, the propositions and their negations are properly carried through to the premises. However, Markham starts this new assault by saying, quote, If this argument were formulated correctly, premise two would read more like objective values seem to exist in the world or objective values are perceived by most, I'm being generous here, of the world's inhabitants, end quote. What he's done is taken a logically valid argument and in order to show why he thinks it's not valid, he offers what he thinks are improvements that would actually make it invalid. So not only is he incorrect that it's a non sequitur, but his attempts to change it would turn it into a non sequitur. For if we altered P2 to be, quote, objective moral values seem to exist in the world, end quote, then we would also need to alter P1 and P3 to be completely different. In fact, not only would we have to change P3 to P3 to therefore it would seem that God exists, end quote, but P1 would have to be radically altered because it's not clear on how many possible positions it would be that moral values only apparently or seem to exist. What Markham is doing is actually trying to change altogether what the argument is arguing for in order to escape from its conclusion. Yet, 
Nowhere does he in fact demonstrate that the argument, as formulated by Craig and others, is in fact invalid. He then rapidly shifts gears and goes back to the previous complaint that Craig does not defend premise two, that objective moral values and duties do exist, again, ignoring the entire corpus of Craig's work doing just that. Markham states, quote, again, the only support for the assertion of objective moral values is that is the subjective perception of them by people. We're not talking about the existence of moral values, but the perception of moral values. Clearly, this is just not enough to say that they do, in fact, exist in some objective sense, end quote. Here, he's not actually making any new argument, but merely recycling the previous failed one, and thus ends the criticism of Craig's argument. That really is it. While Markham is a clear and considerate thinker, it can hardly be said that his article has moved the needle for the cause of atheism against the moral argument, and yet he's not done. Remember, the argument is meant to show that God cannot be the foundation for morality. So Markham asks, can we think, uh, he quote, can we think of any other possible explanations for the fact that many of us do admittedly perceive moral values in the world, end quote. This is where the real one-two punch should come in to knock God out of the explanatory ring. But what comes is not really what the title of the article offers. He writes, quote, And the answer is, of course, an enthusiastic yes. We are social animals. Evolution, whether or not its ex existence is even acknowledged, is a perfectly tenable explanation for why we happen to have these ethical inhibitions seemingly woven into our very being. We, as social beings, are preoccupied with the good and the bad quite simply because nature has gracefully conditioned us to be that way. End quote. That's all that he has to offer. Social animals and evolution. Namely, nihilism. So we see again that in order for him to justify that God is not the foundation of morality, he must deny morality itself. There's no such things as objective moral values and duties, he says. There's legal fictions and wish fulfillment. Markham has painted himself into a corner where he knows that rape is actually evil and wrong, but we've just evolved to have a strong distaste for it. And yet we live like it's wrong. We punish people for different tastes with imperialistic zeal. We hold special disdain for those who rape small children and we justify it by calling it evil. But for Markham's worldview, it's not, and indeed cannot be evil or wrong. It's just an evolved distaste. We really wish it was wrong, and so we pretend that it is in order to make society work. It's just wish fulfillment turtles all the way down. Again, notice as well in his statement that he says, we as social beings are preoccupied with the good and the bad quite simply because nature has gracefully conditioned us to be this way. Well, in one sense, as I've said, that's his nihilism. In another sense, he's actually spoken something that he can't say. We can't be preoccupied with the good or the bad because there's no such thing. Nature hasn't gracefully conditioned us any way whatsoever in relation to reality. And in fact, if he's right that there is no such thing as objective good and objective bad, then evolution has actually misfired and led us into false beliefs. 
this is a this is actually a support for Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism that if naturalism is true given evolution we ought not to believe in naturalism the same thing here can be shown against Corey's view against evolution the final problem for Markham comes in his closing paragraph where he wrote where he writes quote it may be that some god did in fact endow us with moral sentiments sure but nevertheless, it may also be that natural selection has done so, end quote. The thesis then that God cannot be the foundation of morality is then shown to be a brutum fulmen that not even Markham himself thinks that he accomplished because he says it may be possible that God is the foundation, which is not the same thing as saying God cannot be the foundation. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of The Freed Thinker. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, leave some comments in or leave some questions and comments in the comment section below. Thanks so much. And we'll see you again soon. God bless.